Leftovers Season 2, Episode 3, Off-Ramp is over, but we're just getting started here on Post Show Recaps, or I should say we're getting started again because we already recorded this podcast, but somebody stole it from us and we didn't have a backup. Antonio didn't email it to himself. Josh, you didn't email it to yourself either. Yeah, but you're supposed to be the one on the backup. Don't put this on me. I know, it really is my fault. So I'm really sorry. This is the second time we're recording this podcast today. We're very frustrated about this. Can we just, like, uh, do you need a hug? Is that... I need a hug. Maybe okay. Help. All right, Maybe we can do that. Help. Just kidding. This is our first time podcasting about Leftovers Season 2, Episode 3. Antonio, how are you? Josh, how are you? I'm fantastic. Listen, You're fantastic. You know, I'm, a, I'm a hugger, so any episode that ends with the offer for a hug, I just want to hug that episode right up. Are you a mother hugger? I'm a mother hugger. I'm a brother hugger. I'll hug anybody. I like it. I like yeah. it. You got to be careful with those hugs, though. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not just going to hug anybody uninvited. I'm You're not gonna just going offer- gonna, gonna to hug willy-nilly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah well, would- I mean, maybe I'll hug willy-nilly if willy-nilly wants a hug, but I'm not going to hug willy-nilly unless willy-nilly says, please hug me. That's that's good words to live by. That's what it's going to come down to. All right, here we are. Enough silliness. This is Leftovers Podcasting on Post Show Recaps, Episode 3 of Season 2, Off Ramp. In my opinion, Leftovers Season 2, still continuing the charge of being freaking awesome. Antonio, agree or disagree? Agree completely, okay, cool. completely. Like, I, I'd say this, uh, not just continuing the charge, getting better. Yeah. Oh, really? Do you think this is the best episode of the season? Uh, yes. I wow. Do. I do. I do. And we're not I, even in Miracle, and we love Miracle. I think the first two episodes were great in a, in a different way than Leftovers Season 1 uh, was, but I was such a huge fan of Leftovers Season 1, uh, as I know you were, and as we became. Toward the of, end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The not fi- the beginning. Kind of, kind of like episodes there. 5 through 10, maybe 6 through 10. Uh, somewhere after the baby Jesus was kidnapped and came back. Somewhere after they clearly took a break and decided uh, to treat the show differently. I think we both became much bigger fans of the show. And I think that what we became fans of and what the show was doing was fully on display in last yeah. night's episode. Okay, yeah. So you had texted me and you said that you were feeling really fired up about this episode. And then I also saw you, Antonio, on Twitter. You were tweeting thumbs up or thumbs down for Leftover Season 2, Episode 3. I saw a few thumbs downs. It wouldn't have even occurred to me to really ask that question. But has this been an episode that you've been noticing was controversial for people? Yeah, I, I, there's, been, there's been some, you know, there always are going to be haters of this show. I don't understand why they watch it because if you don't like what you're seeing and you've watched it in a continuous basis and you still don't like what you're seeing, I there's other television, plenty yeah, of television. That's when you say Stragoy, Stragoy, stab it in the heart and stop podcasting. Yes, go watch Quantico. You'll love it. Oh, um, stop it. There's Quantico. <laughs> I'm continuing my campaign. Unbelievable. This is across many podcasts. Antonio's slam against uh, Quantico. So anyway, um, I if you know if you're not if you're if you're hating this show in general, I don't. Don't know why you're watching it but the thing is not a lot of people are watching it the ratings continue to go down and down and down and that's uh not good not good but i guess the people that are watching it are the core people who find the show appealing on any number of levels but yeah that said a lot of comments on reddit a lot of comments and different websites on vulture and hitfix and places that cover the show in a recap basis a lot of negative comments from people not liking this, not liking there were people that really liked the show taking a different direction in Miracle, and now we're back to the same things. Uh, there are people who just don't seem to like the show, but this episode in particular had not only some hot-button scenes, but it didn't contain 
the things from the first two episodes that we were all really on board with. So it's definitely a polarizing episode. Well, I got to say, I mean, I was surprised that we had an entire episode in Mapleton that didn't even end with a hint at going to Miracle. You know, the, the whole miracle of it all is completely out of the picture in episode three. I was surprised how much I liked that. I was surprised how much I liked that considering I've been really anti-Tommy. I'm not a big fan of Tommy Garvey. Chris Zilka is not my favorite person on this show. He, I thought he did a great job in this episode. I thought that this was the best Tommy that we've gotten so far. And Lori, it's such a pleasure to hear you speak. You're a very interesting lady. Yeah. So I, I thought, I thought all that stuff was great. I, it was, it was interesting to see the guilty remnant brought back into it. And I'm curious to see how they're going to continue to factor into this world when I really thought that we were moving away from that stuff. Liv Tyler is out of control, obviously, and I'm very excited to talk to you about how she got into that position of power. So I thought that there was a lot to unpack, but I, I can I can see where some people um, might be coming from if they were really enjoying the ride to Texas, that that was really what people were interested in now was this new setting and this new group of characters and this new mystery that was unfolding there. This episode gave you very little to chew on in that direction. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that's. I think that there are. There's probably a large percentage of the audience that that want that wanted to chew on Miracle. There's also a large percent of the audience who I still think is watching the show on the wrong terms. There was a great post on Reddit uh, by Just Most that said this may be the most frustrating show ever, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. The Bashers are all about answers and not quote letting the mystery be. If anyone is familiar with Lindelof, you've been here before. Lost had a very similar vibe. This show can be seen through two lenses at all times, and I have a feeling it will ultimately just be up to us to figure it all out. Characters or story? Faith or science? What's the most important aspect of The Leftovers? And I think that, I think that Josh, I know you came to a different place with Lost in that you think it's about the journey and not the destination. Correct. And that it's about the ride, and I agree with that. And I think that if you take that show through that lens, it's a much more enjoyable experience, obviously. It was really hard to do that week to week when we were focusing so heavily on the mysteries during Lost. But yeah. Lindelof has made it very clear they're not going to answer a lot of this stuff, but they keep asking the questions. And so I, know. I think people are frustrated by that. Yeah, sure. I, I get that. And I, I still don't know where I net out on that uh, because I think it's a, it's a hard thing to have your cake and eat it too when, when you're saying, I'm Damon Lindelof, co-creator of Lost, a, question, a, a show that asks so many questions. Can you do a Lindelof uh, impression? Uh, no, it would just basically be me like flocking myself over and over again and then hiding from the internet. Uh, that would, that would be my impression. So you wouldn't be able to hear it because we're on the internet right now. Yes. Uh, but you know, listen, I, I, I kid, I love Damon Lindelof, but I think that, you know, he comes out and he says, I'm, I'm the guy who, who made this show that was asking so many questions. It didn't satisfy everybody on every level. Uh, here's my new show. It is also a high concept show. It's going to ask, you know, there's these big inherent questions built into it. We're not going to answer them, and yet more questions are being asked. And it's kind of hard to say, like, well, you're telling me that you're not going to answer these questions, but you keep asking them, so what's the point? And I think that the point is the questions themselves are just interesting to ponder. And I'm mostly good with that, but I do understand why that would be really frustrating to people. And the further and further along we get in this show, you know, the more and more you wonder are we getting punked or are we not getting punked? And if he's being legit and we're not going to get answers, answers to a lot of these questions, are we going to be frustrated? So it is a bit of a ride. It's a bit of a ride, especially when we don't have the full picture of what this thing is going to look like. But I, I love the ride. Yeah. I'm not sure if you were just describing the show or life. And I yeah, think that sure, that's exactly. really the, the main kind of crux of all this is you're talking about a show where most of the characters are also looking for answers. And we're, we're seeing on the show a lot of the, a lot of the time, 
what those characters do or are driven to do or are capable of doing or are susceptible to because they're so desperate for answers or meaning or anything. And that's why people join cults. And that's why things resonate with particular groups of people. And of course, an incident like that, which happens without explanation, is going to cause people to do and say and be completely crazy in terms of their actions. And I think that that is, I think that that's kind of the crux of the leftovers. It isn't so much about what caused it. It's about the answers that people are seeking and I think that you can't have that without asking some questions. And I'm not sure we're ever supposed to answer those with, within the logic of a narrative. I think we're supposed to do exactly what you were just saying, which is look at how those questions are being asked. Look at what questions are being asked. Look at all of that and enjoy that. And, and in fact, through that lens of these characters doing it on that show, ask ourselves the same questions about our own lives. Ask ourselves the same questions about our history and incidents that, and religions and groups and spirituality and all these grand, huge concepts. This is a show that finds ways to tap into those things in, in, in ways that interest people, not only like Reza Aslan, the theologian and scholar who is advising the show on spirituality and religious issues, but also interest viewers like you and I who really just really want to say like, oh, I don't know what the show's about, but it's, it's touching something in me. And, and I'm not sure what that is. And it's different from week to week, but, it, but it's there. And show's doing a fantastic job of that. Yeah, I think, I think it's great. All right. So talk about this episode specifically, uh, generally, but specifically this episode. I, w- I want to hear from you why you think that this was the best episode of the bunch. I don't know that I'm convinced. I'd like to hear your argument for it because I do think that those first two episodes were so strong. And I thought that this was a great episode of the show, but I don't know that I would say it's the best of the season so far. Yeah, the first two episodes did a really kind of a bang-up job of of making me wonder narratively what was going on. Who are these people? Who are the people inside this town and out of it? What are the rules of this town? Like asking the questions about the setting and the narrative of the show. Uh, and that's great. That's a fantastic way to start your second season, especially when you've used up all your source material. We talked about it a lot. Uh, I'm still thinking about Jarden and Miracle. Can't wait to get back there. So they've done a really bang-up job in those first two episodes that way. But they didn't do as much of a job uh, as they did with this episode, which, of course, this episode has the benefit of being focused really mostly on Lori and a little bit on Tommy uh, in the way that the Carrie Coon-centric episode in Season 1 was, in the way that the Matt-centric episode in Season 1 was. Um, we're getting these kind of character-centric episodes that the show has always hit home runs with uh, because we really dig deep into a specific character or small group of characters' psyche. And I think that th- this show, more than any really destroys it when it does it. It's not quite like an in-treatment type show right. where you're going super deep uh, on on what these characters really feel. But I think that because this one focused so heavily on the character motivations of Lori, because it really did manage to sort of seamlessly pick up where season one left off on a lot of this stuff, because it really kind of kicked me in the gut uh, in a way that the first two episodes didn't. Uh, in a couple of different scenes, uh, I felt like this was a superior episode to those first two. Even though those first two were great, they were great in a different way. Uh, and this one was great in a way that The Leftovers, perhaps more than any show on TV, does really, really, really well. Yeah, I mean, if you're interested in the psychology of these characters, it doesn't get much more interesting than the psychology of the psychologist. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know? Yeah, it's, that's exactly and, right. And especially a character who really hasn't said much of anything, you know, on the show. Amy Brenneman, a fantastic actress who had very little dialogue whatsoever other than, like, you know, you could probably count 
the line readings on, you know, if you took out that penultimate episode, you know, on one hand. Um, so it's, it's, it's great to see her really embracing the Lori that she was before the guilty remnant. And I think that we see by the end of it, that maybe actually she's not so different than the Lori we saw in season one. Um, so I think that there's, there's a lot to unpack here. So let's dive into it. And the episode begins with finding out that Lori and Tommy are like this tag team, guilty remnant disassembling squad. Yeah. It's cool. I like, that that's a really interesting twist on what these guys are up to we we saw them at the end of season one not really sure where they were driving off to where they were going to go turns out that they are just going to be like a a two-person squad against the guilty remnant yeah and i don't know exactly why uh what gave birth to this i mean Lori gives a, a great speech later in the episode where she talks about kind of herself. She says the first rule of therapy is you don't talk, you know, the th- therapist is that you don't talk about yourself. But she then talks about herself and describes how she almost was in a fugue state while she was in the guilty remnant. And she woke right. up and realized that things were on fire and, you know, that's all she could do to escape and whatever. Yeah, like Patty came in and told her about the guilty remnant. And the next thing she remembers is her daughter was almost burning alive. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe that's true, maybe it's not. But uh, I do think that that in that in that realm, it's very interesting to see her kind of taking this action so strongly against the guilty remnant. Is she really more ashamed or embarrassed at herself for letting herself get swept in? And is that why she's kind of leading this hit squad with Tommy? Is that is that the reason for this? I mean, you have to. You have, let, let's. I mean, let's just go to the end of the episode and say the questions that we have to ask ourselves are. Was she always looking to build a flock? Is building a flock kind of fulfill something that was needing and necessary in her since she doesn't have her family anymore? Um, or was that a feeling that she had before the departure? We don't really know those things. Right. But I think it's interesting to suggest what would even be motivating them to do this other than I don't like the guilty remnant. Well, there's lots of people who don't like the guilty remnant. Like why are you doing this specifically and what you're doing and putting yourself out financially and jeopardizing these people's lives and all of it? Like why is that all happening? Yeah. And I think that there's definitely a bit of shame involved. I think there's obviously a ton of anger, like the way that she lashes out against the publisher. It is, it really boils over the, the fact. The way that, that she runs over the guilty right, remnant. Exactly. Yeah. That was the next thing. Perhaps I more than once. Yeah. Perhaps more than once, if ever at all. We'll talk about that. Uh-oh. Uh, I, I, and I, I think that there's just, there's obviously a lot of anger going on there. And I think that there is this extreme desire for her to reclaim her life. She was obviously a very successful you know, professional therapist back before the departure. The money in, in the Garvey household was really coming from her. She was very, very good at her at her work. I think that she's trying to get back to that. And I think that she's got a hell of a story under her belt. You know, this guilty remnant inside story is amazing. And maybe it does lack a little bit of that feeling that the, you know, the publisher is obviously a, a total bone tard, but he's got some things in, you know, that he's talking about that makes sense. You know, he's saying, like, put some feeling into this thing. I want to know how you felt. I get the details, but how did you feel about it? And obviously how she feels is rage, 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 rage. So Lori has just kind of become this, you know, she's, She's speaking again, but she's sort of this quiet rage monster, and it just explodes out of her by the end of the episode. And it's, it's really cool to see, and I think that this thing against the guilty remnant is deeply personal, and I think that she probably does not quite recognize yet that a lot of the things that drew her to the guilty remnant aren't out of her system quite yet. Yeah, and I think that's really the key element of this. And 
you know, it, she doesn't want to talk about how she feels to that publisher. And that isn't something that frankly, has, I don't blame her. That guy sucks. Well, he does. And he was getting the details wrong. Like your daughter, what's her name? What does she write on your letter? Like, yeah, like he knew uh, a little Jessica, bit, right? Yeah. yeah. He couldn't really be bothered to really nail it. Like he wasn't really feeling it. Right. They just, I mean, they really liked that they had a hot property. Like she's a, somebody who was inside this cult and wants to do a tell all and yeah, we'll work with you to make it actually a good book, but we like your access and we like your stories right. and you might have to make some stuff up. Uh, but yeah, the question about how does it, how did it make you feel or how did you feel like that is the kind of, and you see her kind of feral reaction, but that's the kind of question that I'm not sure she had really taken a step back to think about in the context of all her planning and building up her little, you know, cots and Nicorette and all of it. I'm not sure she really took a step back to breathe and think about that. And it's interesting because Tommy seems to be doing an awful lot of thinking about that sort of thing. And she really doesn't like it when Tommy says like, Hey, like they, they know some things like they, you know, they, they do, right. they, it, they make sense. Like he right. says, they make sense. They know things and she does not want to hear that. And I don't know if she doesn't want to hear it because she doesn't want Tommy getting too deep or because she deep down kind of agrees. Right. I think that what's interesting about these two, and I think now we're talking about the psychology of Tommy a little bit, but frankly, a lot of what we could have just applied to Lori can apply to Tommy. And I think that these are two people who were soldiers in a war that they thought they knew why they were fighting it and are now really realizing I didn't really believe that stuff anyway. Uh, I, I view myself as somebody who can forge my own path, but they're both really struggling at being leaders right now. And I think that they are frustrated. You know, nobody wants to be told that they are the underling. Nobody wants to be told that they are a foot soldier in somebody else's war. Everybody wants to be the hero of their own story. And I think that they are, you know, they had these moments where Tommy woke up to the bullshit of Holy Wayne and Lori woke up to the bullshit of the guilty remnant. And I think that these two are trying to come together and bust up the types of armies that led them to that kind of thinking. And I think in their attempts to bust these organizations up, I mean, not so much Holy Wayne, but Tommy's sort of redirecting those feelings about Holy Wayne toward his mother's cause. I think that they are realizing that their hero's journey is not so straightforward, that it's not so easy to craft that narrative that I think that they're both really craving for themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, uh, I think that that's true. It is interesting though, because the way the show opens, of course, is, You've got this like almost whiplash ask like jazz drum beat playing. Uh, yeah, it's like the war drum. Yeah, it's like the war drum. While she is while while Lori's washing her car and going about her typing and everything, and then you contrast that with the scenes of Tommy in the guilty remnant housing, being very quiet, uh, sort of writing down notes to people, just going about his business. Then we go back to the drum beat, back to the quiet. So. At least initially, they're being presented as two opposites, uh, one frantic and, and drumming and loud and the noise of the, the car wash and the, you know, the typing and all of it, and one being very quiet in, in what he's doing. But I think at their core, they are very similar. But there are some interesting questions there. I don't want to jump ahead to, to Tommy because you said Tommy kind of caught on to Holy Wayne's bullshit. And I think that we watching episode series one, we, we saw that. But um, I also think that there's a possibility that he's telling the truth about what happened with Wayne and the hug with him at the end of the season. And so I think that it's possible that maybe he felt a little differently about it by the time it all ended up. We don't really know. Yeah, I, I, we'll, we'll, we'll get there for sure, but that's definitely a big question. Um, but we, we see that Lori is, you know, she's holding meetings. She's holding, you know, therapy sessions for people who were in the guilty remnant. Tommy is going from hive to hive, as he calls yeah, them. Yeah, don't call it that. Don't call it a hive, but he's, you know, he's What's going, wrong with bees, Josh? <laughs> I love bees. Bees make honey. The bees are everywhere. 
everywhere. Bees. God, your firearms are useless against them. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, I, I, I think that we all, we know that Tommy has history with bees. Uh, yeah, I, he's he's obviously you know he doesn't have a lot of respect for these people. Uh, you know he he does have that line later on that they're on to something, but I think that there is some aspect in that he just sees these people as drones. Well, what's interesting? Go ahead. No, you go. You go. Well, I was say, what's interesting about that is we have to remember he wasn't in the guilty remnant before. Right. Uh, so the the rituals, the learning, the things that he's experiencing there are new to him. He was with Holy Wayne before. So he, I, I don't let's let's assume for a moment that he was with Holy Wayne. He thought it was bullshit at the end of the day, just kind of rejected it out of hand, you know, didn't want it uh, and thought, okay, this guy's a charlatan and I'm a fool for following him. Right. And then he gets into the guilty remnant and he's like, you know what? Some of this makes a little sense. Like they know things like I'm feeling good about this. And it's like, well, why should he be embracing that if he was so coming into this as such a cynic about these kind of things? Uh, And I don't know. I don't know if it's that he really is lacking and needed it. And that's what put him in with Holy Wayne. And that really hasn't been cured. And so that's why he finds the guilty remnants message resonant. But it is it is interesting because he wasn't with them before. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. We see him. He's, you know, we see Tommy. He brings Susan into the conference. Susan is the woman that we know is not going to make it out of this episode alive. We see a lot of this episode through her perspective. I thought it was interesting to get the take of somebody who was not going to be with us for very long. Somebody who is obviously not thrilled in the guilty remnant leaves the guilty remnant seemingly is cured, but maybe it's uncurable. And I know that that's a big piece of what's going on with Lori and Tommy. And there's very sad stuff that's going on with this Susan character. Yeah. I'm, I'm very sad. And like, I, I don't, at the time we don't really know how sad, but, but there's it, just such like, there's like a, a really lost look in her eye. Yeah. She's, she's, she's absent. She's distant. And what I'm, what I'm really kind of upset about or pissed about is that, Lori took on the role of full therapist. She went to her home and talked to her husband. She set right. up the reunite, the reunification and all that. And she couldn't get, pe- she didn't see that. She didn't see that far away. Look at that, that thousand you know, foot stare. Like, right. She wasn't onto that. Like we, I, you and I noticed it right away. Right. So that's a little disturbing. That to me means Lori really is not paying attention to what's going on around her. And I think she kind of knows that. Well, I mean, I think that that's pretty easy to see once we've seen the whole episode and we know that Lori is going to attack a publisher just because he's insulting her, which isn't exactly proper, polite, you know, civilized no, not, behavior. Is that how you get a book deal these days, Josh? Not, not how you get a book deal these days. Maybe that's how you get an audio book deal. I do remember uh, before we recorded The Evolution of Strategy, Rob was tackling quite a few individuals. Uh, <laughs> but no, I, I, I think there's, there's that. And then, like, the best case scenario is Lori is losing her mind when she's running these guilty remnant people over. Over. Worst case scenario is she's actually running people down. Um, so this is not somebody who is totally here. Yeah, and and that that is absolutely right. And what's interesting about that, you mentioned the where is my mind or the kind of where is her mind or what's right. going on. Uh, that song playing, the piano version, where is my mind, is playing. Uh, is it playing right now? I feel like... <laughs> it's not playing right now. Okay, I thought maybe I could hear it. I'm, that's just in your head. That's, that's what I'm saying. So we, I, I hear absolutely no music going on right now. We, okay, all right. If well, anyone then. is hearing music right now, then weird things are happening in your life. So that says a lot about me, I think. But um, but yeah, when we saw when we heard that song last episode, it was Kevin. And what was happening when the song was mainly playing is Kevin was kind of going nuts. Uh, and where, where it ultimately ended up, was that Kevin uncovered his crime. Like he was right. digging up the body of Patty uh, while that song was playing. And that was really kind of where that song ended up. And 
where we kind of see Lori doing while the song's playing? Well, one of the things we see is her washing her car. Right. And if you buy into the fact that she's washing the evidence of her running down the guilty remnant off the car, then she's covering up her crime. Uh, and, and Kevin, you know, the song is playing when Kevin uncovers his, or, you know, his crime. So there's a connection there, but there's also the connection that we know Kevin Garvey is nuts. Like something bad is going on with Kevin Garvey's mind. Like he's yeah. clearly out of it. And for or this, something spectacular is happening. Or too. We something know. miraculous. Right. Yeah. And we'll get to that. But, but yeah, it, it, is this what's happening with Lori? Are we supposed to think that she is tapped into something that she's just as distant or disconnected as Kevin? Uh, because we see this montage Granted, it's a different version of the song. It's a much softer. I feel like that's the version I'm hearing right now, but I don't know. Um, it's a piano version, and she's very. It's a different, a different presentation. But there's a reason the song is the same. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's the Mr. Robot version too. It's the Mr. Robot version. Yeah. This so. this song has gotten a lot of play this year. It's it's, good. it's the year of Where's My Mind. I'm, I like I'm it. and I'm okay with that. Yes, I, I love like the it. Pixies. This is it's fantastic. Good. It's Josh. Good. I have a question for you. Is there a difference between day poops and night poops? Uh, I mean, I don't want to get too personal, but yes. Okay. I think a clear yeah. And have you ever had an un, 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 like an unfortunate encounter with somebody and, the, and told them that you that you need them to pay you more money and I then like, just stolen a bagel right out of their hands and eaten it right in front of them? I'm not much of a bagel thief. Pizza thief, perhaps. Yeah. You know, I, I have been known to, if it was a pizza bagel too, pizza bagel thief in the night, for sure. Like that, that would happen. Are we talking me. like a bagel bite or like a yeah. full on pizza bagel? Well, I would prefer the big thing, but if it's a pizza bagel bite, I would grab a fistful of those things. Nice. I actually, in college, I lived on pizza bagels. <laughs> for for freshman year, that doesn't sound healthy. It wasn't. Yeah, but doesn't it sound was, healthy. But it wasn't. But, Where is uh, my mind? Indeed. But speaking of not healthy, I mean, I this landlord is a jerk from the word go. But I think that it's interesting because we 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 sense that you know Lori is kind of pushing the envelope here. She's definitely doing some things that she's not supposed to. And I'm not even sure that it's a hundred percent. She's sort of playing it by ear, right? Where she where she brings the Susan in, she says. I'm going to sleep here tonight. You know, I'm going right. to leave the apartment. I'm going to sleep over here. Uh, and it's, she's just kind of playing it by ear and it's not healthy. The, the song that she's playing, it, it is, where is my mind? Uh, and that's not good. Uh, it's just, I, I don't know. It's really, when you're first watching this episode and you're seeing this sort of thing that she's setting up, I feel like it seems like she has it a lot more together and she has a much better plan, uh, than where we find out, uh, where the episode ultimately ends, where she's clearly not got it together. And, if this is what's happened, if, if they've called a Hail Mary by the end of the episode and we're creating Lil Wayne, like this is bad, this is bad business. Right. I think that the thing with, um, with what's going on with Lori is it's really, I think it's really relatable to be in that moment where you think that you are driving the bus to the destination. Like, you know where you, you know that you're going to somewhere good. You might not know exactly where it is, but you're very confident that you are going to get to somewhere awesome. And you have this feeling of confidence about moving forward and it will reveal itself to you that you have no idea what the hell you're doing. And you really should have, you know, booked a hotel. Like you should have at least booked the city. You should have figured out where you're going. And I think that that's what's going on with Lori. And I think that that manifests over the course of the episode is that she has this confidence about her. She's taking these people in. She believes she's helping them. She's writing this book. This book is going to tell all the guilty remnant is going to be completely revealed to the point that when her laptop is taken, she really freaks out because this is, her you know this is her work this is her weapon this is her shot at the guilty remnant she's taking a lot of different types of shots at the guilty remnant but this is the nuke 
hopefully. And she really is invested in the, in this idea, but she doesn't have a backup. You know, she does not not only just a backup of the book, but she doesn't have a backup plan. No, and once no backup plan, plan. Yeah, yeah. And once once the plan really starts to unravel, I think is where we really see Lori come undone as well. It's not only no backup plan. It I think it becomes abundantly clear, like that she hasn't booked the room. Like she doesn't know. She hasn't thought it through, like you were saying. And I think the not thinking it through manifests in some really ugly and horrible ways in this episode, uh, both with what happens with Tommy that she was a little concerned about uh, and, of course, with what happens with Susan. Um, but I, I we're going to end up in a much darker place, I think. And the thing is she's searching for answers and trying to do, I think, what she thinks is the right thing. So maybe there's a little bit of fraud. Maybe there's a little bit of lies that she tells to the landlord. Like maybe there is a little bit of uh, mis- mistakes that are being made. And I think that I really kind of want to pivot to larger – when I sent you like I, I have some hot takes about this episode. I think a lot of what's going on here uh, is, is sort of really interesting to look at through the lens of history. Uh, which is to say that not only when incidents occur, but also just at certain times throughout our history, there have been spiritual revivals. There have been these eras of kind of upheaval that lead to religions uh, being formed. Uh, some of our our largest religions uh, were formed in these in these times. And you can go back to the Abrahamic religions in the time of Christianity. Reza Aslan wrote a whole book that we talked about on this podcast called Zealot about the historical life of Jesus of Nazareth, using kind of historical analysis to indicate like what the world would have been like at the time that Jesus came to be and, yeah. and really evaluating all of those circumstances. And I promise you, the, and I read the book, the, the central premise and the kind of interesting thing is it was a time of spiritual tumult. There were a lot of people that were around at that time claiming that they were the Messiah and claiming that they were starting the next big thing and that they were on to something. And that you, you know, I don't think we think about that with Jesus, but that, that absolutely happened. And then you look at like how Christianity formed after that. And it was small groups of people maybe relaying the person's message. I mean, in this, in this particular instance, then what we've got is we've got a Tommy Garvey who is very similar to maybe some of the early followers of Christianity who are like, I knew Jesus and this is what Jesus said. And that you get more out of the story and more feeling through that. And the same thing happened with the church of Latter-day Saints. The, there was a huge spiritual reformation going on in the mid 1800s in America, right around the time that Joseph Smith had his vision about the golden plates and the angel Moroni and all of the things that are central tenets to the, the faith of LDS were happening. And one of the crazy things about LDS, a lot of people, criticize the religion because they think that the belief systems are nuts or they look at joseph smith and they say bad things about him but i think that you're seeing when you see when you see those things about joseph smith i think you're seeing a lot of them play out in this episode it's like people are human and yeah maybe they make mistakes or maybe they 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 don't understand the messages that are being sent to them but they were clearly receiving messages and i wanted to bring that up because this is happening with kevin too Uh, kevin is a lot of what's happening with Kevin and Patty is not that dissimilar to what has happened with similar prophets or, or other religious figures throughout history where they hear voices and they don't know if those voices are God's voice or what. Uh, and we think those people are crazy. Even in the context of this episode, we hear about some crazy person in Australia who claims to have risen from the dead. And they, he's described in the episode in various points as a nutter, uh, a wing nut, like just somebody crazy, uh, like, a, like all of these things. And if, if, that, if the Jesus story happened today, we would say the same thing about Jesus. 
So I think it's really, 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 really interesting to look at it through that lens uh, and to see the, what Tommy and, uh, and Lori are doing through that lens and to see Kevin through that lens because maybe there is more to it. Like maybe these people aren't crazy. And you kind of hinted at that earlier. Uh, and I think that you can't talk about the leftovers without thinking about this. Yeah, no, and I think that that's a central idea of the show is, uh, and it's something that the writers talk about a lot is, uh, false prophets, real prophets. Are these people hearing legitimate voices? Are the voices coming from inside? I think it's the central tension of this show, uh, is, is how people are coping with this inexplicable event that happened in this world and, are they finding solace in something very real? Are they finding solace in something that isn't real, but is real in its unrealness? Uh, it's really fascinating stuff. Well, and we didn't see, and we don't know if we'll see any more of the uh, cave people story from the beginning right. of the first episode. But I mean, it can't be ignored that that was a weird event, the, the earthquake that happened. And then you've got a mother who was bitten by a snake and, and died of a snake bite and left her baby there. I mean, stop me if you've heard that before, because that whole setup sounds like a lot of religions, like a lot of spiritual tales, a lot of origin stories, a lot of things that play into faiths from around the world and throughout history. You've got some kind of crazy story like there was the earth shook and then we walked over uh, and discovered a woman lying dead uh, with in injuries on her body, uh, maybe a snake bite and there was a baby there and we took the baby and maybe they then treat that baby as something mystical or holy. I mean, right. those sorts of things happen. People come up with faith-based explanations uh, to things that they can't explain. And I think that that is what we see so much in The Leftovers is uh, on a daily basis, Josh, you and I take so many things on faith and matters of faith. And I don't like think what don't speak for me. I, I know you do. I know you had faith that I would uh, that I would be on this podcast today. That's true. I did count on you being available at 3.30 p.m. Eastern time. Is that what time it is? Not anymore. It's I've got now, another thing now, Josh. It's now 4.05. I have to go. I've got pizza bagels. Ah, give them to me. Oh, but no. But anyway, yeah, we, we take a lot of things on, on faith every day that things will just work or that yeah. things will naturally be there for us. And I don't think we always stop to take a step back and think about uh, about that. And I think that it's easy to criticize tenets of specific faiths that we don't agree with. Like, oh, why does so-and-so wear something on their head? Or why does so-and-so believe that they have to wear something under their clothes? Or on right. and on and on. Instead of thinking like they're just trying to answer the same questions that we're trying to answer. And maybe we don't like their answer. Maybe that answer is not for us, but they're just trying to do the same things that we all are, trying to figure this thing out. And I think that that's especially true in this world. People are really desperate for answers. And so that's a really fascinating thing about the show to me. Uh, and I think that this episode has, has that as the backdrop without really deeply going into it except for at the very end. Yeah, well, preferably these people aren't finding meaning by running running people over with their vehicles. No, but I think she's totally lost. Like, I do think that she does have, she has no idea and she sees, I think, their presence as an attack on her, her, you know, quest, as an attack on her, you know, jonesing for answers. I think she sees their presence as a blockade to that. And I think she sees them in the way she doesn't understand why they won't get out of the way. That bothers her very much. So much so that when she finds out the news and when Tommy's talking to her about Susan was just crazy, there's nothing we could have done, what right. she says is they don't get out of the way. Right. Like they don't move. And I, she can't get that. And that upsets her, shakes her to her core. Yeah. Um, such that she's willing to, she's willing to try to do something different to solve 
what she sees as is part of humanity's problems, especially this part of humanity. She's willing to kind of tell a BS, maybe BS story and give them something instead of just taking it away from them. Right. Um, so where should we move in the episode? We're, we're, we're very general right well, now. Let me you ask know, you, just really broad strokes. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. We, we kind of covered up through uh, the, where is my mind kind of thing. Uh, I, I want to know, do you think she's running over multiple people? We see her washing her car several times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my question is, is she running over anybody at all? Okay. Tell me. Yeah. Let's go. Let's get to that. And when you, and and I'm not saying that this is my take on it. I'm saying that I think that it's, it's a possibility worth exploring. Um, you know, we do see her at one point. She runs down two guilty remnants. She washes her car. The episode begins with her washing the car. So the implication then is that she's done this before, I think is a, is a healthy implication. Um, but we also are getting, you know, that sound cue we're getting where is my mind by the pixies in piano version which is really a song that in pop culture tends to be reserved for is somebody losing their shit and sure even without her you know if she is just straight up running these people down then she has lost it uh it's a it is a it is not a, an okay thing for her to be doing more than once once at all it's not good it's not great i understand her rage towards the guilty remnant but this is not a healthy thing to do um but if she is not running somebody down if this is something that she's projecting that she's seeing and we've certainly seen on this show characters who have visions of things uh characters who see things that aren't necessarily there or seeing things that only they can see i don't think that it's out of the realm of possibility that this is some sort of manifestation that when she sees the guilty remnant outside on her path that she is you know, kind of fantasizing that she's driving through something that isn't real. Yeah. What's interesting about that, uh, is that there is, or there seems to be as Tommy, I think notices at one point when they go to meet Jill, there is that damn spot, uh, on her, on her windshield. But he doesn't notice the spot. He right? just notices her kind of doing something on the windshield. And that would be, you know, human. That would be a spot of a spot of man. I think, you know, it'd be a, a spot of a spot of person on your windshield. Uh, if that is the case, if she is running people down, but it could also still be a fragment of her imagination. Like, if, especially if Tommy didn't see the thing, I'd have to go back and and look at the footage. Uh, but but I believe that he was really mostly noticing that she seemed to be really obsessed with something on the windshield, less about what was actually on the windshield. Well, yeah, and I mean, when Lady Macbeth has her moment with the out damn spot kind of thing uh she i don't think it i think she's i think she's sleepwalking or she's dreaming i can't remember and i i don't think i mean it's a real spot i think she's imagining it i think it's a manifestation of her guilt uh over what happened with the king um but and her role in that but she i think she's dreaming or sleepwalking when she sees it and so it, there is this connection throughout the most famous damn spot in history yeah. that it, it was not something that was conscious, that it was an unconscious or subconscious thing. And so this may not, that spot may not, may well not be there. Uh, it may be that she is like feeling that it's there. Uh, and right. that would be totally in keeping with that one as well. Yeah. And I think that if it is there, I think that we have thoroughly examined why it's there. And it's because this is somebody who looks like she is in a lot more control than she truly is. And I think that the episode does a marvelous job revealing that to us. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that, you know, when you watch it again, that particular spot 
it is not directly linked to the one incident that we do see with her hitting the guilty remnant. Uh, that would have occurred after, uh, right. based on the continuity of the story. So there is some indication that if that happened, uh, or if that spot is a spot of man or whatever, that it could have come from another incident. And then we are meant to believe, I think, that the original car washing we're seeing and all of that is a pattern, that she's doing this more than once. And I think that... You know, like, like you said, by the end of the episode, I think we, we get an idea that, okay, anything's really possible. She yeah. could have been doing it at, uh, multiple times or it could all be some kind of inner manifestation that we're seeing externally and it didn't actually happen. Anything really is possible once we know what we know about Lori by the end. Yeah, and I was going to say, like, I don't know. I don't see that Lori is a killer or anything like that. But then again, she did go along with that crazy guilty remnant plan at the end of the season. There was fires. There was brimstone. There was all of that. And you don't have to look really far in the Garvey family to see some killers. You know, just look at who she's shacking up with right now. Tommy blasted somebody in the second episode of the series. Yeah. She just sh- straight up shot somebody in the second episode of this series. We know that Kevin has at least buried bodies. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that Lori Garvey is just running people down. Yeah, and probably going Brian Heideck and some dogs. So No, like, stop. It's not good. It's not no. good. But yeah, let's good. talk about that second episode of this series, or let's talk about Tommy Garvey a little bit, um, because I think we're we're gradually kind of approaching the, the unfortunate scene in the middle of the episode. Well, I with, think with we, Mil- we are, but I, I, I feel like we need to stop at least if we, on our way there to talk about um, the, the meetup with Jill, you know, through Tommy and Lori's perspective yes. a little bit. So I wanted, that's why I wanted to talk about Tommy Garvey in general because totally what ha- I mean we saw the meetup with Jill in the previous episode uh, so we know that that was before the Garveys went to Miracle they were on their way out of town Jill was feeling really good things were kind of happy uh, and so when Tommy tells Lori like uh, Jill's happy that's true uh, she he of course leaves out the fact that Jill did not want anything to do with the letter that Lori gave her uh, but he's meeting up with her and they still have a connection there so that they that line is open. Uh, but I, I don't know, Lori, it's not open with Lori and Lori reveals by the end of the episode, she thinks her daughter may never speak to her again. Right. We have to think back to season one. I think Lori was, was ready at the time when she was full on guilty remnant. She was ready for Jill to die. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She she knew Jill was going to die in that house. Yeah, I, I mean, my my memory of that is foggy at best, but I think that it was, you know, she's she's woken up by it. You know, that's the that's the thing. You know, she screams Jill when her daughter right. might be burning alive. Right. So I think in those moments, I I would disagree. She does snap out of it, but I right. think that before that, I think that that she was on board with with it happening, and I don't know. I that that kind of is in line with her sto- her fugue state story about how she woke up screaming for uh for her daughter to be saved but right. i think before that she knew what was going to happen i mean she knew what was happening so yeah. i think she was at least on board with it she tried to get jill to leave a whole bunch but by the end of it i don't know and i don't know if jill thought she was ready to, i mean i don't know where that all was but i can't imagine that there there wasn't some of that there because the breach is so significant that 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 she won't even talk to her Right. And I, but what's interesting to me is, and I, I gotta go back and I gotta watch that second episode as well of this season. But with Jill, Jill seemed like she wanted to see her mom when she was talking with Tommy, right? Like she seemed like she was interested in having a conversation with her mom and didn't want to read the letter because she thought that the letter was offensive. It's offensive, like, oh, you're gonna write to me, but you won't have a, you won't have a conversation with me. And in this episode, we see from Lori's perspective that she was interested in meeting up 
with Jill, and it's Tommy who's keeping the two of them at arm's length. Yeah, and I don't know what's going on there. Like, I really... Does Tommy know that Laurie is screwed up and he doesn't, he wants to keep Laurie away from Jill? I think that that's entirely possible. Like he's just absorbing, you know, the hits for himself. Yep. You know, he does have this line later on when he's talking about the Holy Wayne of it all. And he's talking about how Holy Wayne, if this happened, Holy Wayne said to him, like, you'll be able to take people's pain. It'll cost you something. So is he, is he absorbing that pain? Is he just putting himself in this uncomfortable position of keeping these two people angry at each other for their own sake in his mind? Is that what he thinks is going on? Well, what's really interesting about that is in season one, right after that incident where Tommy does shoot the person, Holy Wayne tries to hug him and Tommy refuses it. And Wayne says something to the effect of like, you're the only person I can't figure out. And then he famously says, you're all suffering and no salvation. Yeah. And so Tommy taking on that suffering, taking those hits uh, is very much in keeping with Holy Wayne's kind of analysis of him at that time is that Tommy's all suffering and no salvation. And that, well, I got to say, you know, there might be a ton of suffering going on, but it's not all salvation. There's something else going on with Tommy as well. Tell me. We'll get there. Oh, we're pretty much there. No, no, no. It's okay. It's okay. So speaking of things going on, we're going to get back to Tommy, apparently. Tell me what's going on in Australia, because I think that we're at a point now where it's mentioned in the background of a scene. We hear the news report. Yeah. Australia three mentions in a row. Yeah. So so either this is just like the you know the most eastery Easter egg that's ever Easter egged, or it's you know something is happening in Australia. Is the leftovers going to pick up and and move to Australia in season three or some shit like that? I don't know. But you know, is this just is this just call outs to? to lost fans, to believe that these shows exist in the same universe. At the point that we've done this three episodes in a row, it feels like something has to pay off on The Leftovers with Australia. Yeah, Sinto asked us on our post-show recaps page, uh, our show page at post-show recaps, do the strange happening in Australia have anything to do with the man Rose and Bernard went to see to cure Rose's cancer and lost? I think it's about time that we can start asking some of those questions. I mean, I think that they're, they're, they, the shows could very well exist in the same universe. Yeah, I think it's possible, and I, I think it's going to depend on whether or not we leave season two without like some very serious information about Australia. Because I think that if it's really just kind of generally sketched out the way that it has been so far in this season, if that's just the trend that continues, then I think that you could very reasonably, in your own fan fiction-y mind, come to the conclusion that the leftovers and lost take place in the same universe. Yeah. You know, there's this, there's this, um, it's, it's about this man in Australia who was believed to be dead. He's recently emerged from a cave outside of Perth. Who's to say that that wasn't Hugo Hurley Reyes emerging from Perth because he frozen donkey wheeled his way to Australia. And everyone's like, Oh, that guy is supposed to be dead. Yeah. Uh, that's true. Who's to say? That's Who's true. To say? Sinto actually asked if we thought it was Holy Wayne that was resurrected in Australia. No, we got the name of the person, uh, in the news report. They said it got guy came out of the cave covered in mozzie bites and his name was David Burton. Wow. And David Burton. David Burton is the same name that was on the letter that the guy in the tower handed Michael uh, to Michael to to Murphy to mail. Right. So who is David Burton? Who's going to play David Burton? Which lost actor is going to appear as David Burton? It sounds like a Ben Linus alias. Oh, my gosh. That would be fantastic. Right? Yes. That would be good. Yes. Uh, you could see one of one of Jacob's many aliases as he comes off the island. David Burton. Yeah. I, I think David Jacob Burton. keeps a lower profile than that. We gotta, I don't know. That seems like uh, yeah, I do he agree. Seemed, he seems above like forged identities. Yeah, he really does. Doesn't need yeah. to do that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, so uh, thinking about the, the, the chronology of that, just so we know, and so 
we put it in proper situation. When the incident is reported on the news in this episode, it is before um, the meeting with Jill. Uh, It's right when Tommy's about to meet with Jill. And as we know from the the timeline of the first two episodes of this season, uh, the the letter was kind of on Jarden day one, uh, the first day that we saw Jarden, which is the same day uh, that's the day before the Garveys arrive. Uh, is ultimately into Jarden because the next day begins with them waking up. Uh, you know, there, there's just a whole. It's like the second day, I think, in Jarden. So, right. Uh, this, there's no way that this guy's letter predated the resurrection. That this letter is after the resurrection. So, there doesn't have to be any meaning to the letter, right? It could just be that that guy in the tower is a stupid crackpot, and he heard about this guy in Australia named David Burton who allegedly came back from the dead, and he wanted to send him some stupid crackpot letter. That's all it has to be. That's all it has to be, but the fact that Australia keeps getting mentioned really does make you think that something bigger has to happen with that. Otherwise, again, it's just like a fabulous lost Easter egg. Well, and it's just so, so elaborate. I, yeah, and I don't know. There, there's some part of it to, to me that is also, like at least for the West, uh, in terms of that, Australia is literally the other side of the world. Uh, and it's a kind of place where, I mean, I'd love to visit Australia, uh, parts of it. Uh, I wouldn't want to go into the outback. But... Um, but I would love to visit Australia, but it is really foreign to me in a lot of ways. So something like this could be going on in Australia, and I don't know how seriously I would take it until I knew. I mean, there were reports that there were sites, uh, a moving city seen in the, the clouds. Have you seen this? No. Yeah, this has been on the internet this week, and it was actually on like the IFing Love Science page. Um, this was in like in, in Shanghai, I think, or somewhere in China, uh, a city was legitimately filmed in the clouds that didn't exist. And it was, it's allegedly a mirage, but what do I know? Like, that's all I'm getting is what's from that news story. And all they were hearing about this guy in Australia is that he was, he was in a cave, uh, uh, believed to be dead for three days. And he emerged from that cave. That sounds a little bit like the Jesus story to me, Josh. Wow. I mean, and, and I, you know, what do I, what information do I have other than uh, if I'm Tommy Garvey, other than what that little snippet that I heard on the news, I'm not in Australia. I have no idea what's going on there. Like something legitimately miraculous could be going on in Australia and we could get it in a, a snippet on the news in here in the, in the States of nothing, like just one little passing reference. So yeah. I think part of the, the location is also part of it. I think that it isn't just that it's linked to lost, although that is especially convenient. I think the location being part of it is, you know, is important because it's just the other side of the world. All right. So that's, that's all the Australia stuff. You could look that up on your laptop, assuming that your laptop hasn't been stolen and you don't have to go on a mission impossible style rescue mission to get your laptop back. Yeah, that's pretty rough. Uh, that's pretty rough. I, I mean, she got Jack Bauer action here from a really did. Right. Yeah. Like I couldn't believe it. Um, I, I just love the balls with which it takes to just like go behind up to the kid and just like literally just yank it from his hands. I mean, I guess at that point, what are you going to do? You came all this way for your laptop. I, you're just going to steal the thing from the kid. What's he going to do? He's going to shout at you. You're going to get out of there. You're fine. Yeah. And you got just this Russian woman in there. We don't really know what's happening. Like, uh-huh. first of all, the, the landlord is a class A dude. She calls this kid an a-hole earlier in the episode uh, when she goes to get the laptop back right before this scene. Uh, and he's eating in that scene as well. This guy's always eating. Is this Brad Pitt in, in disguise? Yeah, I think so. But yeah, so you get to the house and this is a crazy gambit by Lori. It's insane. And I mean, I think that we should... At the time, I really wasn't evaluating like, okay, Lori Garvey's got some really serious stuff going on. I actually thought 
until that, well, okay, Lori Garvey um, is doing some really important work. Like she really is doing this sort of counter programming. And I think that that's vital and valuable and important. But I think with this scene, we sort of see a little bit of how crazy she can be. And then of course the aftermath is when she does or does not run down the guilty remnant. So you really see that come out. Yeah, so she's she's unraveled at this point. And then I guess the next really big event that happens after that is all of the Tommy everything. You know, uh, Tommy, he gets the whistle blown on him literally when he's in the guilty remnant. He thinks that he's identified somebody he can free. She narks on him. He gets abducted. He gets taken to the middle of nowhere. And here comes Meg. And here comes Holy Wang because we get some pantsless Tommy action and we get a very, very intense scene going on. That was so intense, man. I don't even know it how I feel. It was really about it. intense. Like I, the thing is, I didn't notice it at the time, the first time through, but the second time through, I noticed HBO put the warning up before the episode. Rape. This episode yeah. contains rape, and I, I, you know, I didn't even like. I didn't didn't flag for me the first time through. I didn't notice that warning, but uh, it it definitely does. And I don't know. Is that we we're gonna? I mean, people are gonna talk about that scene ad nauseum. And Damon Lindelof actually did it. A, a two kind of two or three quick questions with Alan Seppenwall about that particular scene that's up at hitfix.com. dot uh, yeah. We can link it in the show notes. But I don't know. How do you how do you read this? Meg is clearly in some new position of power with the guilty remnant. She has a goon squad. She's using that power to really kind of, uh, you know, screw Tommy with his, with his mind and otherwise uh, not good. Uh, Is it going to be any more than that? Is there going to be a baby? Like what, what was the, what was the point of that in your mind? Right. Well, if he's the new Holy Wayne and we know that Holy Wayne was a baby making machine, you, you know, you got to imagine that something, you know, and, and we're talking about religion and we talk about conception is such an important part of so many religious stories that it feels like something has to come of that. It just, it just feels whether or not that's the intention, it feels like that has to bear some fruit. Um, that's, that's just the way that I, that I read that as far as why she's doing it. Is she intentionally trying to do something like that? I, I don't know. It might just be an exertion of power. You know, it might be a dominance thing. It might be a, hey, go back to your mom and tell her about your awesome day. Like, go tell her about all of these great things that just happened to you. Uh, your life was spared. You just got your, your brains effed out, all this stuff. Uh, and like, sarcastically, obviously, none of that was very good. So I, I feel like it could be a display of dominance. I don't know. It really shows that Meg has gone far off the reservation. And I am very, very hopeful that we get a Meg episode because I want to know how she got to that place. Yeah, me too. Me too. For sure. You know, not just in terms of like the position of power, but to be the person who did that. You know, the first time we ever saw Meg on this show, she was furious with the guilty remnant for like constantly coming up and like mucking up her thing with her fiance. Uh, And she was, you know, kind of like a reluctant participant in this thing from the beginning. And now she's the new Patty. Like where, where did we get, how did we get there? Yeah, I Uh, I want, I want to see that stuff. And that's why it's interesting that the show still has a Mapleton presence. You know, some of this stuff is still really fascinating. I'm loving what's going on in Texas, but this is interesting stuff. Yeah. And of course, that particular act doesn't have to be a man, uh, you know, uh, in, in power or a man exerting power against a woman for it to be rape. I mean, it can be anybody. Uh, And and that act is often about power and control. Most abuse, sexual abuse, any kind of abuse is about power and control. 
And so you think about, you think about Meg as somebody who maybe felt powerless or maybe felt like she was out of control or didn't have control of one aspect or most aspects. And that's certainly a way to, to feel powerful and to feel like you have control of what you're doing. And that is a sick way to do it, obviously, maybe the sickest, but it is, it's bad. And I don't know if that's why it was. I don't know if there is more of the kind of conception story to it, whether intentional or unintentional. Um, putting somebody in the situation where you douse them in gasoline and then you get a lighter out. I mean, there's no way to look at that other than the fact that it's abusive. And it is like you said, Oh, go tell your mom about what a great day right. you had. Exactly. Like, there's no other way to read that other than that's sick. Yeah. And I, I don't, Tommy was really screwed up by it. Obviously in the moment he was screwed up by it. He was saying no. Then I think he just kind of lost track of what was going on and was really really mentally screwed up by it. And then when he gets back home, obviously he's very, very, very upset with Lori over what happened. Well, and that's and that, when he says, yes. they know what's going on. Like, yeah. That's the point sense. where he's, where he's starting to drink that guilty remnant Kool-Aid a little bit. And right. it's like, how did you get here? Right. Did, you know what, what, what you just, you just had this really traumatic thing happen to you. How did you get to this place where maybe the guilty remnant knows what's up? Yeah. And that's, you know, it's all about the mind F like the mind was getting F in that scene just as much as anything. And, you know, especially when you consider the gasoline part, the second half of it, uh, that's all to screw with him and to really put him in a bad, bad place. I mean, it's not quite like waterboarding where you make someone feel like they're going to drown for sure, but it is very similar in that respect. It's psychological as much as anything. And I, that's, that's really rough. What about that lighter, Josh? Is that the Lori lighter? Is that the lighter that Jill gave Lori that was engraved uh, oh, as it man. comes up in the story later? Are there any freeze frames? Uh, does anyone see what the engraving on it? Says? No, I, I haven't seen any freeze frames. I will tell you that as far as I can remember from season one, and I went back and looked a little bit at this, in front of Meg, Lori drops the lighter down the drain. Actually, this is when Meg is talking. Lori has wordlessly gone to visit Jill around Christmas, and Jill gives her this gift that just basically says, don't forget about me. And, and Meg takes it, or Lori takes it out and Meg's like, you should keep that. I won't tell anybody. It can be a secret. You need to keep that. And right in front of Meg, Lori drops it right down the sewer. Then later in the episode, all by herself, Lori goes back and is very upset because she can't pull it out of the sewer. She can't reach it. She's sticking her hand in the grate. She right. can't get it. So as far as I know, that lighter stayed in that sewer. Now it seems if that's the same lighter that Meg went back and got it. Uh, and that could seriously become an issue between the two of them if there's a confrontation later on. I'm, I agree with you. We need the Meg episode. Uh, and we, I want to see Meg and Lori, uh, in the same scene, uh, because of not only because of their roles, but because of the, where they are now, the role reversal. I mean, yes. the, the woman who recruited her is now sort of like the, the Meg is in charge and Lori's on the outside. So that's crazy. Did you really go back and you watch that that episode to see about the lighter? I didn't watch the episode, but I watched that scene, and then I fast-forwarded to see if there were any other scenes with Meg. You're so damn good, Antonio Mazzaro. <laughs> I wanted to know myself. Oh, no you're ele elevating this podcast. Great I, stuff, I wanted great. to know myself. And great, de great detective work. Look, Zippos are Zippos. Zippos are great lighters. It could just have been another Zippo, but there's a, the fact that it was a Zippo, I mean, come on. Like, possibilities out there i yeah. like that i i think that would be that'd be dark but it'd be good it'd be really good and be really certainly it'd be in keeping with somebody who is as dark as meg seems to be right now <laughs> um did you think that this was the end for tommy i i really legitimately thought that that dude was just gonna get burned alive me right too there. me too i thought we were gonna see him get get immolated you know it wouldn't it wouldn't have been um 
I don't know. I, it would have been a big shock, but it, it also would have felt like a totally HBO show type of thing to do. Like now it's the, it's episode three of season two of the leftovers. We're going to kill a Garfi. And that was like going to be like the big exit press the next day it was all like the Chris Zilka postmortems. Uh, like I could see it happening in front of me and it didn't happen. I well, very, that would have been, I was the, actually more surprised that he survived. That would have been the Garvey to kill to really ultimately do the fans a little bit of service because the least popular story from season one was the Holy Wayne story. Yeah. We talked about it a ton in this podcast it was always hit and miss whenever tommy would show up tommy mostly miss mostly miss mostly miss i completely agree uh and so that would have been very uh sort of symbolic uh execution of tommy uh like we're gonna really burn away we're gonna literally burn away all the things from season one that you didn't like but right no it didn't happen didn't happen i thought it would too i agree with you yeah, didn't happen. I'm glad it didn't happen. I don't know where I'm at with Tommy Garvey. You know, the end of this episode with Tommy, we'll talk that through. I thought that Chris Zilka did a great job. I always give thumbs up to the dudes who go full frontal. You know, just the, the joking aside, I think that, that more of that on HBO. I'm always thumbs up on that stuff. I thought that he did a really good job in this episode. Aside from that, that was a really brave scene. I thought that his final scene in this episode, content aside in terms of where that's leading us, I'm not sure about that, but the performance I thought was really good. This was Chris Zilka's finest performance on the show, and it's not close. Yeah, I agree, hands down. And he destroyed that final scene. Destroyed. So you, yeah, so if that's, if that's the Chris Zilka that we're going to get on this show, if that's going to be the level of performance that we're going to get from this character... Right. That I'm at, I'm at least interested in watching him yep. work. So I, I was I was very blown away by by his stuff in this episode. I thought he was really really good. Bring it. I agree. Um, all right. And so I guess the the next the next scene we get you know we get this big fight between Tommy and Lori. We've talked a lot about their psychology. The next really big thing is Susan's suicide, uh, and she drives off into the other lane. She, you know, we, before that even happens, we see like this montage of her, you know, back at home, she's out to dinner, she's listening to her boring husband and things are just, it didn't work. It didn't work. Whatever, whatever process Lori thought that she had helped put this woman through, it didn't play. It didn't take. And now she's taking out the entire family. And she has like this note that was, uh, who was that written by? Annie Day. It was written by the guilty remnant guy who came into the group to kind of confront her. Yeah. Any day now, any day now. And I guess this was the day. Oh my gosh. Like I, if I read a note like that, that someone wrote me, I would not drive into traffic, Josh. I just want you to know that. What would you do? What would any day now mean to you? <laughs> I would be like, yeah, you're right. Any day now, any day now, like my uh, big crazy break. people are going to stop bothering me, handing me notes and say any day now. <laughs> that's what you're waiting for. <laughs> I'm just yeah, waiting for that moment. Unbelievable that that is, that's what, that's what happens. And I think, um, it, it's a really, really morbid scene it, and it's, it's, it's tough. That was really tough to watch. Those are on Lori. I promise. I promise you those are on Lori, and that's how I feel about it, how I felt about it the first time, that's how I felt about it the second time. Those deaths are on Lori. Those deaths are on Lori. She she pulled that woman, out, she and Tommy, pulled that woman out of a situation where her husband and son were fine. They were not getting killed. I'm sure they missed her, but they weren't dead in traffic. Uh, they even indicated in Susan's speech that the husband had gotten a tutor for the son, that he didn't even seem that upset, and he doesn't even seem that upset. He doesn't throughout the course of the episode. He's sleeping well. He's just mumbling about the most, like, you know, just boring things that are going on in his life, and it's really yeah. upsetting her. Um, and that They were fine uh, without Susan back in their lives. It was okay. Uh, and then... 
Tommy ripped her out of the GR. Lori did not take care of her and really shepherd her through psychologically what needed to be done. Did not recognize that she needed something more, uh, that she needed answers and was capable of doing this. And she's a professional who is supposed to be able to be, you know, to tell when people are capable of doing that. And she didn't. Uh, and then that's what happened. And it's really, I mean, it was really hard to watch. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really tough. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a lot. It, 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 I, I don't know if I can fully go on. This is all on Lori. I mean, I think I think that a lot of it is on Lori. Obviously, this woman was the one behind the wheel. She has to take a healthy chunk of the blame. But I think with Lori, it's it is a reflection of she thought that she had this handled. She thought that she was in control. She thought she had this plan to help people and to bust up the guilty remnant. And this, you know, if she's not willing to look in the mirror and see that she is, you know, driving people over, she's running people over, or she's imagining running people over. She is not imagining stealing a laptop from a child in the night. You know, if she's not willing to look at that stuff as possible signs that this thing is cracking, then she needs to, you know, she does. I think that this really, it scares her straight in a way um, that this woman that she took out of this, position in the guilty remnant has taken her own life has taken her husband's life has taken her son's life and i do think that that's the first sign for her where she's like oh i don't have this i don't have this all together yeah yeah i mean and i think that that that's why the meeting goes south she plays it beautifully too yeah she really does she's amy brennan was fantastic in this yeah. she was great on season one because she was doing so much by not saying anything but she was yeah. fantastic in this episode yeah so i mean she gets that news when she is pitching guilty you know the the, the next what's next yeah the uh, next what's next this and, uh this yeah. publishing company seems to uh it seems to really focus on these post-departure books loves it yeah what else did they have well, what's the, next I, departure 3.0 departure 3.0 which what was departure 2.0 i wonder. it wasn't that with leonardo dicaprio and matt damon yeah the, the that was the departure oh that was the, that was the departure yeah so departure 2.0 is the second one in the series oh gosh it's like a sequel called infernal affairs or something yeah something like that infernal departures yes uh but yeah she's you know she's very excited to hear that these people love her book then she gets the phone call with this bad news about susan and she's about to leave which is the moral thing to do. You know, that's the right thing to yeah. do. Go, go, go address to your this, flock. Yeah. Go address this huge tragedy. That's just happened to your people. Um, but then she gets the appointment and she goes in and she takes in, obviously is in no condition to be taking this meeting because it ends with her freaking hands around this dude's throat. Yeah. And, and I think like we talked about earlier, at least, at least on some level, understandably so, he was being kind of a, a douche and saying, sure, it's like, the kind of thing you want to do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot to put it on silent or I should put this on silent or whatever. Yeah. It's the kind of thing you want to do. It's like on another show, you might see that happen and then it might flash and you'd be like, oh, that was a character fantasizing about doing that. But it seems pretty clear that that's what happened because she gets arrested. Right. So I wanted to say one thing about the book editor scene, and I, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but I do think that this show is is really kind of asking us to take a look at the way where, where spirituality comes from, why it's valuable, where religions comes from, or come from, how those two things interact. Uh, and in this scene, the book editor he's saying like, why do they do what they do? Why do they believe what? What's their what's their system? Everything has a system. And then he says. You know, Catholics believe that Jesus was crucified for our sins. And I think for most people, that's a totally acceptable belief. I think we accept that as, okay, that, that makes sense. We know that that's true. Then he says, 
Branch Davidians believe that David Koresh needed to sleep with his, you know, whatever. And it's like, okay, that's a crazy one. And then he cites the Australian guy. And then so it's like, look, these things can be on any part of the spectrum. Like right. they can be the David Koresh thing or they can be a Catholic thing, a well-established, understandable set of beliefs, or they can be a totally crazy one. And those exist uh, in this world where people are looking for answers, creating answers, needing things. We talked about this a ton with Holy Wayne in season one, and we talked about how did it matter if Holy Wayne was truly magical or not? If he was giving people like Nora what they needed and really having an impact on their lives and making them feel good, then who cares? We talked about it last week with the John Edward thing, uh, not John Edwards, the philandering uh, pr- former presidential candidate. Which we also clarified at the time. Which we also clear. I'm going to clarify that every time. Okay. Uh, but yeah, the, you know, it, it's, it's there. Like we have to, we have to ask ourselves these questions. Like, and so I think at the end of the day, people who criticize things like LDS and the Latter-day Saints, uh, people who criticize Mormons, I think that they need to take a little bit of a step back and say, if if a particular set of beliefs is not harmful to other people and it helps people, it provides them answers and helps them live a life that is good for themselves and their family, who, who are we to say that it, that's silly or stupid? Like that sort of thing happens all the time, but it's not right to do that just because things we don't agree with their belief systems. It, it's okay. And I, I think that the show is, is kind of making that point and telling us like, hey, like maybe this isn't bad. And I think we, that's where we get by the end of this episode. You think that where we get by the end of the episode is a note of optimism? No, it's a question. I think it's a question. I think it's a, I think we know with these characters in this situation that it's not going to end well. That's how right, I exactly. feel. But I feel like what Tommy says in the car right after he bails Lori out of jail here is he says like they're, we're losing this battle. Right. And, and, it, and it is a battle. Where it's all, if it's a holy war, we're losing this because they, help them put something back in, in, in its place. Like right. they, we don't have that. And yeah, we're not giving them something. We're not the, giving at least them the guilty remnant fills the void somehow. Yes. You know, they give them a thing. Yes. We aren't giving them a thing. And people look to fill the void with faith and with spirituality. They'd look to fill the void that naturally exists in this world with those sorts of belief systems. Yeah. And, and, you know, Tommy's just saying, look, we can't just tear people down and then give them nothing to help them build back up. I mean, like in, in 12 step programs, the second step, I believe is, a came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And that is a belief in God. Like that is like, you have to believe in a higher power. And that is the second step after admitting that you have a problem uh, that you can't manage. Their second step is there is some greater power that can help me. And that's how you build back up when you're going through those steps. And that's a very successful program for a lot of people. And so I think that it it makes sense that that this would happen and that Tommy would feel and Lori would feel like if we want to help people, which I do think is their goal. Uh, then we need to we need to give them something. I really do right. think that's their goal. They're not trying to hurt people. They're not trying to take their money. Uh, I think they really are trying to help people. And I think they recognize if you want to help people, you can't just tear them apart. You have to help build them back up. Sure, but I think what's interesting about that, and I get all of that, and I and I, I really love that take. But I think what's interesting here is they're saying we haven't given them anything. We're not putting anything back in their place, and the conclusion is so. Let's give them something, and so what they give them is bullshit. You know, it's it's or or maybe it's legit. Maybe Tommy does have this Holy Wayne power that he talks about. That maybe he did have this moment where Holy Wayne came to him in his you know his his day before dying moment. 
I'm going to die tomorrow. Let me give you my power type of deal. Maybe that happened. We didn't see it on the show. No, we didn't. Um, you know, and, and we didn't see any flashes toward it in this episode or anything. We didn't see anything like that. And that's not because there was, you know, the actor was unavailable because the Holy Wayne actor is in YouTube videos in this episode. So there's a reason we're not seeing that scene. And I think at least for right now, we are meant to question whether or not it happened. And I'm inclined at the moment to believe that it did not happen. I feel like we would have seen some visual evidence of it happening. That's It's like the don't believe it until you see the body type of principle. So they're coming from it from that perspective. Let's let's imagine that they are actively deciding to give them bullshit. That's a real condemnation on Lori as a therapist. You know, she is a professional. There's, you can't give somebody, you know, like a non-faith, non-religious answer. You can't give them something like that. Lori doesn't have that within her to give them. So it's a real moment of defeat for her. I think that if, if we're looking at it from the, the framework of Tommy is peddling some BS, then this is a real flag of defeat for Lori, I think. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I agree with you in that, in that, like, as a professional, as a therapist, as a person in an organized situation who can follow rules, that that's where that goes. But this is, I mean, if anything else, it's being put in terms of, of combative winning versus losing. Like, right. we are losing. And so she, if she's at war, this is a tactic. I mean, this is a thing where it's like, I want to take the guilty remnant down. I want to take them apart. I well, want then that's a lot less leave. about, that's a lot less about helping people, and that's a lot more about hurting people. And that's think, a lot more about being behind the wheel and driving some people down. I think that's absolutely right. And I don't know if we know exactly where they're coming from. I don't think that their motives are ultimately impure. I think what, where, we, where we are with Lori is I think she wants to help people do what she wants them to do, right. which is get out of the guilty remnant. I think she wants to help them do what she wants them to do in that respect. And I think we see that in this episode. She pulls Susan out of there, and look what happens to poor Susan. Right. Now, you're right. Susan turned the wheel, but Lori's the one who pulled her out. And Lori thought she was doing the right thing, thought she was helping her, thought that this was a another strike against the guilty remnant, but didn't really consider the, profet- the truly perfect. She did this nominal thing where she's like, your wife might not want to sleep in the bed. So you better, you know, you better be nice to her and tell her just right. to come back to bed. She's right. not saying like your wife has some fundamental existential dread and perhaps suicidal thoughts. I think she needs to be on medication and under supervision. That's what well, a she's somebody who's do. not in touch with her own feelings, certainly. And I think that we see in a moment like that, not very in touch with other people's feelings. And I think that if there's a weakness to Lori, it's that she's mechanical. Yeah. And, and I think that what's really interesting about that is like, uh, there is that kind of element where when we talk about Patty, like Lori put her faith in the guilty remnant as Lori indicates in this next scene, because Patty had sent something would happen. And then Patty took advantage of Lori's desire for answers. Right. And so Patty took advantage of Lori's own weaknesses and, and she assigned or ascribed some value to what Patty was doing because Patty had had a premonition that same day of the departure that something bad was going to happen. And Lori remembered that. And so Lori ascribed some value to that, felt like maybe she had a deeper understanding of what was going on. And so she should listen to her. And it's no surprise then that she primes the pump basically by telling that story and then has Tommy tell his story. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, you know, like, hey, you want to talk about why I fell for the guilty remnant? Let me tell you. And then let me ask you to do the same thing for Tommy. Uh, and right. that's really kind of, it's really kind of a, there's a sleight of hand there that makes me feel like this is not going to go well. But I, 
I don't feel like her ultimate motives are that negative in, in, I think they have negative consequences. And if her motive is to take down the guilty remnant, you're right. It isn't about caring about people, but I do think that part of her taking down the guilty remnant is taking their people out, giving them a new reason to believe, giving them new things to do that isn't the guilty remnant type stuff. Uh, but that isn't necessarily the best cure. And this is not, I don't think this is going to go well. You know, I really want to believe that her primary concern is helping these people that she's bringing out. But I, you know, the fact that she's got so much riding on this book to destroy the guilty remnant, the fact that we are seeing her destroy either actual guilty remnant members with her car or figments of her imagination with her vehicle, something that's a physically violent act. The fact that we see her physically acting out against the book publisher. This is a woman who has a ton of rage inside of her. And this is deeply, deeply, deeply personal to her. And I can't help but feel like that's the primary goal, that this is it's an offensive measure. It's not I want to help these people. It's not I want to build these people back up. I want to give them something to believe in. For me, it really does feel like I'm building up my ranks to come after Meg. I'm building up my ranks to come after these people who cost me many, you know, two years, however long, you know, lots of time in my life, meaningful amounts of time that put me through that fugue state. Um, I feel it feels nefarious isn't the right word because I don't think that she sees it that way certainly but it, it feels really misguided and I think that this is the is the flip side of the faith thing that you bring up that who are we to question somebody who derives meaning from something that doesn't seem um, you know our cup of tea or you know, harmful right or harmful or whatever but when you're serving masters that have other purposes that don't benefit those people that's where it gets a little touchy and I feel like that's where we're riding into a little bit with Holy Tommy with the Church of Holy Tommy so it's 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 fascinating stuff it's scary stuff it's potentially hopeful stuff I don't have a lot of hope for it I have a lot of hope for it to be very entertaining and interesting to unpack and I think that you know, the fact that we just had this very heady conversation about this episode really is a tribute to the fact that this was a great hour of television and that The Leftovers is on fire right now. Yeah, and I mean, even... And more, thankfully, Tommy Garvey is not. Well, that's and that's right. Thankfully, right. he's not because he may he may not have the same motives as Lori, right? They may be at different, at different ends of this thing. Right. And he may be a helper, and that's what he did with Christine. Uh, Wayne saw that in him, that he wanted to take care of her and that he would do that. Uh, that's why he ultimately killed in the in the second episode of the first season. So there is that element where Tommy could be coming at this differently than Lori. And I think that we have to kind of think about the fact that the story could be true. Uh, if you think about the chronology of it, I also kind of looked at this. Tommy, Christine kind of bails on Tommy somewhere, I believe, in Indiana. And Tommy doesn't know what to do with that baby. Um, he hasn't really, like Wayne has kind of left him out in the, in the middle of nowhere. He had found out that Wayne had other people with other babies. He found that out uh, with an in- encounter with that guy who looked like TJ Miller, like we talked yeah. about. So all that happened with, uh, with Tommy Garvey. And then we really don't know what happens until he pops up again and he, he's left the baby at Kevin's doorstep. Yeah. And so, we know Holy Wayne was somewhere between Mapleton and upstate New York uh, because that's where Kevin had his encounter with Holy Wayne. We just He just sees him dying in a bathroom somehow, and that's where he's at. So Wayne was possibly traversing the same areas as Tommy. It is entirely possible that Tommy is the one who killed Wayne. Right. Um, we didn't see that on screen. We don't know who stabbed Wayne. We may come to find out that, that Tommy is the one who did that. Uh, and what's interesting about that is when Tommy tells the story at the end of this episode, Tommy said, I can give you my power, but it comes with a price. Right. I, is the price that, that Tommy had to kill Wayne? 
Yeah, it's possible. I, I think mean, it, it is because Wayne predicted his own death. I'm going to die tomorrow. I'm going to he he he. I think that that is like one way to ensure that his prophecy was correct. Is he had Tommy kill him? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, I I again, we'll we'll see where it shakes out. I feel like you got to see a little something. You know, it's one too. thing. It's one thing to hear Tommy talk about this story. Uh, it's another thing to see it. And I feel like we needed we needed to see a little bit of something, at least for me to fully believe this whole mumbo jumbo. But I'm excited for the sake of the show yeah. we did. But I mean, for the sake of the conversation that we had about religion and spirituality, you're, you don't right. see the body. Like you right. don't see the body. That's kind of the whole point. Uh, and so it is this very difficult thing to strike. These people in this room. We one of the other interesting things. About about this final scene, Tommy extends his arm for the big hug. He's become the new Holy Wayne. He's little Wayne. Nobody jumps up to hug him. We don't see that happening. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. so we see that the, never happened. They just leave him hanging. They all leave. the. Room. I have no idea. And I don't yeah. know if the hug works. I don't know where that goes. You know, I just know that Tommy's trying to sell that, whether it, whether it's something people buy or not. I mean, one of the women specifically in that scene was incredibly moved and she was crying. There was another guy in the scene who looked a little bit skeptical. Right. So it's hard to say exactly how resonant this will be when we meet Lori again and and Tommy are they going to have 100 followers is this going to be the new Holy Wayne cult like what's going on are they going to be targeted by the feds like I don't know but I mean that's the road we're heading down I think and the thing is I don't know that Lori you you talk a lot about her revenge I don't know that that was always her goal because I don't think she really knew what her goal was. I think she was kind of being organic about it and following her emotions. And, and I'm not talking about it being a mindful goal necessarily either. Yeah, that know? may be it. And it may be a non-mindful thing where she's like, I just want to get at the guilty remnant any way possible. I want to get their people out of there. I want to tell them that there's a better way. I want to tell them my experience, at least show them the way that you can talk and you can be safe and blah, 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 blah. But yeah, I don't know if her goal is always to build this army against Meg. I don't even think she knew what Meg was, but that could very well be where she's at right now, especially after this stint in prison. Yeah, definitely possible. All right, let's let's hit a couple of really quick questions yep. before we wrap up yep. here. This was from Dave Backer who wanted to know, will Tommy and Lori wind up in Miracle? And I guess my question stemming from that is, will they wind up in Miracle? Will Meg wind up in Miracle? Or are we going to have a Mapleton story that's going on this season? I think we're going to have a Mapleton story that goes on for a little bit more. I think it's possible that Tommy could end up in Miracle. Well, a little bit more. I mean, we're already almost, you know, a full third of the way through this season. Yeah, so I think we could have one more full Tommy and, and Lori episode, and then by the end of the season, Tommy ends up in Miracle. Uh, I think that's where we could go with this. Um, or Tommy could die and Lori could end up there. I, th- I think Tommy is the more natural kind of fit there. But, um, yeah, I think we could end up with at least one of them uh, being there. Tommy is connected to Jill still. They text. They have ways of communicating. It's not like they're totally off. They have ways on their phone. It's version 4.0, baby. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think that that's entirely possible that I don't know if that's going to beat the traffic getting into miracle anyway. No, but there's probably another way around like ways Uh can tell you a secret way. Yeah. Holy ways. Holy ways. Um, Well, there you go. And then the, and then a bigger question, um, is from Anthony on posterrecaps.com who says, how do you feel about the holy storyline coming back? Um, how do you feel about holy Wayne getting some prominence back here? You know, we talked about there could have been this meta moment of burning Tommy Garvey and burning that really bad taste from season one away and just ignoring it moving forward. Like it's gone. It's out. We're done. 
we've kind of doubled down on it by having an entire episode devoted to Tommy, who is now inheriting Holy Wayne's powers, quote unquote, or maybe not quote unquote. What, what's your take on this? Should we be going back to this? Well, is this worth doing? I feel great about it. And then for all the reasons that we just spent an hour and a half talking about it is, it really comes down to the fact that I think this is a show about a lot, a lot, a lot. And I think that the new theme song, like the, let the mystery be, uh, and the way people are looking for answers and some one person's choice, the person who's singing the theme song is to just let it be, to not really look for those answers and to not try to explain things and to just let it be. And I think that that, um, I think that that's a, that's an interesting kind of that there's a lot going on with this show in that respect. And yeah. I don't think you can leave that. I really like how the torch has been passed to Tommy now because whether we know that story being is true or not, or what we know about that story right now, those people in the room either are going to believe it or they're not. And if they do believe it, then that answer has meaning to them. And it'll be just like the hug that Wayne gave Nora Durst when she was kind of skeptical of it. And she just was like, I've got money. I'll try it. And it really seemed to have worked for her. And so, you know, does it really, does it really matter? I don't know. I think it's great. I don't really need like, I was going to ask you, do you feel better about it being all in one episode versus intercut as a B story? I feel like that is the better way to handle it. It's probably the better way to handle it. I like the way that the show is handling it now. I did not love that character in season one. I really didn't care for Tommy in season one. And I think that they are, if they're going to approach that material again, so far they're doing it in an interesting way. And I think that given the quality of the show recently, and not just this season so far, but the back half of season one, I'm inclined to give it a shot. You know, it's not, I'm not saying Stragoy as, as this storyline reemerges. I'm not there quite yet. I'm not ready to kill this story. But I'm going to be skeptical. You know, I'll always be a little cautious when the Holy Wayne is rearing his head. Yeah, me too. And I, There's and still like a little bit of room that they still got to prove a little bit more. You got Holy Wayne TSD? Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Uh, we just got a comment on posterrecaps.com that says, when will the podcast be up? So how about we wrap this up so that we can get that podcast up? Yeah, and you, in fact, commented back. It was like, were you paying attention to me? Were you doing that while you were talking? You're amazing. What are you, I a wizard, walk- a genius? I can walk and chew gum. I said, we're literally recording the wrap-up right now, so give it anywhere from one to three hours. That's amazing. You're amazing. Hey, you're pretty basic sense to while, while talking to my friend Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, you're doing all the heavy lifting on this thing anyway. You're really on fire right now. This is great. And again, not in a literal sense. But not, in the, not in the, yes, yeah. not in the yeah. literal, literal sense. Yeah, I have Very, not met Liv Tyler today. Perhaps not unfortunately. Yet. One of these days. One of these days. Do we have a hashtag for this one? What's what, a good what one? Did you, I, you just said one, and I forgot to type uh, it down. I don't know. You, you wanted it to be Holy Wang. I know you did. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's inappropriate at this point. How about uh, how about hashtag Spot of Man? Spot of Man. Okay. I like it. That's kind of a compromise between... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we got it. So we'll go We'll go there. Hashtag Spot That's of Man. That's what got Bill trouble. Yeah. Tweet that to Antonio at AC Mazzaro, two Zs, one R. I'm at Round Howard. The Leftovers podcast. We're recording these on Mondays. We're three deep now. I believe there's only seven episodes left. Is that right? So sad. So sad. So we've got a lot to do here still as the season is progressing, but it'll be over before you know it. So let's savor it while we can. Let's see what happens next week. It looks like we're going back to Miracle. That's fun. I like Miracle. It looks great. I mean, I, I'm dying to get back to Miracle, even though I, this episode floored me and I loved it. Uh, that, that, I'm fascinated by the story they've set up for Miracle, so I can't wait. 
Yeah, it's going to be good stuff. All right, everybody, subscribe to what we're doing, postshowrecaps.com slash leftovers iTunes. If you want to see everything that we're doing here on Post Show Recaps, postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes. Lots of fun stuff going on right now. Walking Dead, American Horror Story, Fargo. We've got Mo Show's Recap, which is our kind of catch-all show. Once Upon a Time, Seinfeld Podcast, Saturday Night Live, you name it, we're doing it. It's fun. Having a great time. We'll talk to you all again soon. Take care, everybody. Bye. Peace.